0: You go to God with me in prayer. Almighty God, we today today, as your people gather and we bring our requests to you, knowing that you are the one who has all authority and power and control in your hand, and you are good You want to use your goodness, your good power, for us. So, Father, as we just sang about the day that we will see Jesus Christ, we pray today on behalf of those who don't know you. We, as a church, pray for those who, as it stands now, will one day meet you, not in joy, but in sorrow, For those who have not turned to Christ in faith. Those who have not listened to what your creation screams of your existence. They have closed their ears to what the word of God says about you. And they are not looking to Christ. Father, we pray that you would work in the lost around us. Father, we pray for the the children and the, the family members of those here in this church who aren't believers. Father, we ask for their salvation. Father, we we pray for our neighbors in this community and in Boynton Beach and in each of our communities where we live that don't know Christ. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Father, for those in this room who have not trusted in Christ alone. They have not dealt with their sin by placing it on Christ. They have not repented from their ways. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes to the gospel. We ask this as a church together right now. Father, as today we turn to the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, we pray for the least of these in our community. Father, for the widows and those without families, that Oasis nursing home, we ask for your kindness on them. As some of our members love those in that nursing home, and as we collect each Christmas for them, we pray that we would love them well. Father, for organizations in our area that care for the poor and the homeless, things like Boca Helping Hands or the Lord's Place, Father, we pray that you would give favor to their work, Father, for those who struggle with substance abuse in our area and the wonderful churches and ministries that are, that are loving them, we pray that you would help this good work to prosper. Father, we pray that you would help us to become neighbors that reflect our King Jesus Christ. Would we not just love with word, but with deed as well? Father, I pray that you would mature us as a church today as we go to your word. We pray that we would see the beauty of Christ and what he calls us to. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, not through my words or my insight, O God, but fundamentally through your word which is true and is life-giving and is good and is clear. We pray that you'd shape us as a church this morning, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in recent years, the term virtue signaling has increased in usage, especially on online circles and social media. If, if you're not familiar with the term, Uh, To virtue signal is to uh, is generally understood negatively and it means that you you publicly express your support for a cause or uh, a, a virtue in order to to signal to others your moral correctness In order to show that you're on the the right side of an issue oftentimes a controversial issue so on Instagram or Facebook or even in a conversation with friends after church, uh, you make sure that your perceived profile aligns rightly with the key issues of the day. Uh, Whether it's a political party, or a current area of injustice in our world, or immorality in our culture, the virtue signal is to give the necessary clues to others, to make sure they see that you are in the right. And it's about, honestly, it's about posturing. It's about impression, because it's about uh, naming your side more than it is about doing something about the issue you're talking about. So whether it's a bumper sticker or a comment on a profile, it's aligning yourself with the moral superiority. Now, this word that I'm kind of picking on here at the beginning of my sermon, virtue signaling, it might be a newer term, and it might have gained more attention in the online world that we live in now. But the issue is anything but new. The Bible has much to say, actually, about those that care chiefly uh, that their, their views are signaled correctly and, and do that more than they care about how they actually live before God. Uh, Amy Joseph Wright writes this. She says, while speaking out on important issues is sometimes warranted, The Bible invites, nay, nay, commands us to be much more concerned with virtuous living than virtue signaling. Jesus instructs us to devote devote more time and energy to aligning our hearts and lives with the truths of his word than to aligning your Facebook profiles and Twitter feeds with groups or causes. I wonder, do you give more attention to how you signal your moral correctness, and to the attention you give to, to aligning your heart and life with God's word. This is what we're going to talk about today. For, today's passage is going to help us with this. If you brought your Bible, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, to the passage that Mitch just read for us. Today we're going to focus on this confrontation uh, from a man who signaled rightly about his moral, moral ideas and about how to honor God, And yet, uh, his heart did not follow suit. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. As we do, just let me encourage you, church, to be on guard against the familiar becoming unimportant. We all know this story. Let's ask God to show it to us afresh as we look at it closely. My prayer is that we'll be confronted clearly with the high call of the law of Christ on our lives. And my intent is to do this with you today by answering four questions from the text today. I'm going to ask and answer, what does God require? How should we, how do we respond? How should we respond? And then how does Christ respond? If you notice there at the beginning of our passage, the context of the story is, is one of confrontation. Look at verse 25. We read, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put into the test saying, teacher... What should I do to inherit eternal life? Luke shows this man is, is standing up, is, is getting up to confront Jesus, getting on his feet. And this man was, was a, a lawyer, so this would have been an expert in the law of God. Likely this was a, a Pharisee that, that specialized in the Old Testament law. And here Jesus is, this traveling rabbi who's teaching people how to live before God and telling people that that he has the revelation uh, of God himself. We saw this last week. And it seems that that this lawyer comes essentially to audit Jesus. He's going to check up on what he's saying, making sure he's legitimate. He doesn't want to learn from Jesus. We read in the text he wants to put Jesus to the test So he asks Jesus What should he do To inherit eternal life Now this would have been A common discussion among Jewish rabbis As a God-fearing Jew uh, what, what does this Jewish man Need in order to, to Share in the resurrection Of the righteous at the end of time And So the confrontation is on uh, The bait has been set Will Jesus here give the right answer From the law well, Jesus masterfully answers this question with another question. Look at verse 26. He says, He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, there's two beautiful things happening here at once. First, Jesus is showing his reliance on the word of God, he's pointing the, the man to reflect back on what God requires. It's God's word that will give the answer to what we need for eternal life. But then second, notice this this makes the the lawyer explain himself. Uh, So there'll be actually no room for debate if he answers rightly. As one commentator explained, Christ intended to draw the reply from the Pharisee that he might condemn himself. We'll see that the lawyer himself is forced to acknowledge what what God himself says in his law. This is where we see the first answer to our question, number one. What does God require? Now, maybe you're here today, and you don't think about this question much. You don't think about what God requires of you. Maybe you're not yet a a follower of Christ. Uh, Let me just suggest to you here that if, if you were created by God, If you're here today and you did not create yourself, you're created by a being outside of yourself that's greater than you, then you uh, owe to that being who created you some form of allegiance or obedience. He gets to set the requirements for your life, not actually you. We li- humans like to set up our own standards. We like to, to think of ourselves as good enough, uh, which honestly is just foolish to, to set our own standards. It's like, like an athlete who, who wants to set a world record. And so he begins by deciding himself the standard of the world record he needs to meet. It's foolish, it just doesn't work that way. A subjective standard might be more attainable, but it doesn't win the prize. So also with life. As as humans, we shouldn't be just asking, how how good is good enough? Am, Am I doing good enough? But rather we should be saying, what does God, our creator, require of us? What's that standard? And we find it here. Look at verse 27. The expert in the law of God answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now this is a wise response for this expert in the law to give. As others have pointed out, uh, he probably could have done two things here. He could have listed all of the law and all of its requirements for holiness that God had given the Jews. Or he could summarize them. That's exactly what he did here. He rightly chose a combination of Deuteronomy 6-5 and Leviticus nineteen eighteen, these passages which summarize love of God and love for others, the first half of the Ten Commandments and the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he, he answers what God requires. And what is it that God requires? Did you see it? It's perfect love. That's what God requires, perfect love. You must love God with every fiber of your whole being. Your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. now These aren't four separate parts of you, but rather a a description of all that you are as a whole person. Your your mental capacities, your emotions, your, your physical strength, your very being. You're to give it all. And notice also that you're to love him as you do this. So this is more than just empty works. But you're to have an affection or a devotion for God that will inevitably produce action. And this loving devotion, notice, is to be pointed towards God. It's to be radically God-centered in everything that you do. Transfixed completely on him. He's to be the star at the center of your solar system. He's to be what you most desire. He's to be what you give yourself completely to, what you spend yourself on. My goodness, how good of a law is this? If God is as good as his word says, how kind of God to make us to want him. To get Him. Beloved, His commandments are not burdensome. They are good for us. It is good for you to get to love God and to give yourself to that today. This is this is a wonderful, beautiful calling that He's given to you. Spend your life loving God with every bit of who you are. Know Him and His person. How gorgeous! How beautiful, how amazing, and yet how high of a standard. Oh, friends, this lawyer has has not done this, and neither have you. You haven't done this for one whole day of your life. You haven't done this even just this morning. You haven't loved God this way. We are just not radically God-centered, are we? We are radically self-centered. That's who we are because of our fallen condition of sin. As we are, as Augustine described, uh, turned in on ourselves. Just perpetually navel-gazing, thinking about ourselves. We are at the center of our own solar system, naturally. Instead of looking outward, looking to love God, we just naturally look in on ourselves. Well, this lawyer then not only summarizes the love for God, but he summarizes the laws that relates to others from Leviticus 19. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. Now, now the assumption here is that we human beings naturally know how to give attention to ourselves, don't we? In fact, doctors, when they when they see someone not doing this well, they say something's wrong. We naturally know how to do this. We, we care for our own needs. No one tells you to get hungry this afternoon. No one tells you to yawn. No one tells you at the end of a long, hard day to want your pillow that night. No, you naturally know how to do it. No one forces you, when you stub your toe, to really hate that experience and to cry out about it. Now we're naturally prone to give attention to ourselves. And, and that, that natural hard-wiring circuitry of, of the way that we operate is to be the software that we play as we love others. Timothy Keller says it so well, he says, you're to care for your neighbor with all the joy, the energy, the speed, and the attention that you care for yourself. That's what God requires. Who's done that? Who's done that well? What a good requirement, by the way. What What a beautiful thing. How beautiful God's commands to us are. Who wouldn't want to have a neighbor that was doing that in your neighborhood? Who wouldn't want to come join a church full of people that were doing this with one another they're just loving themselves others as they love themselves with all the joy and force and creativity and speed that you love yourself you just give that away to loving others who wouldn't want to be part of that world so Jesus says to the man you're right you're right you have answered correctly do this and you will live That's right, that's what the law says. If you were to have perfect obedience to that, you would live. You would be like Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, living under what we call the covenant of works, where they needed no substitute. They needed no fix for the problem of sin. They enjoyed God and they enjoyed one another perfectly. They they had life. They were unstained by selfishness. Now, now please note, by the way, that Jesus is not suggesting an alternative way for this lawyer to earn salvation. The lawyer had already broken this law more times than he could count. And so, Scripture rightly says several times that no one will be justified, no one will be set right by the works of the law. No, what Jesus is doing here is, is he's holding up the law to this man Kind of like a mirror Or, or actually is ha- Having the man Take the mirror himself And hold up the law on himself And, and the, world, the law it works this way You look into it as a mirror Showing us ourselves And immediately showing us How we don't measure up To what the demands of holiness are That's how the law works The, world, the law works like, like a school teacher showing us and explaining to us, teaching us how our lives aren't good enough. Well, how do we respond when this happens? Here's the second question that this story answers. How do we respond? That is, how do we respond to God's requirements? As as human beings, we do have a natural response. When we see what God expects of us, our fallen tendency is to justify ourselves. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And we we could spend our whole time this morning just on on this one verse. It's just this glorious and, and clear picture of your heart and mine, our human natures, put on display for us. How does he respond? How do we respond? How do you respond? Well, he, he tried to find a way to explain how he really was good enough. The word he used here is to justify. It's, it's the same word for an acquittal. So it's like a defense team jumping up to the stand in a trial, trying to, to acquit, to set free from any charges. It's Honestly, it's what you did with your spouse last time you got into an argument. Last time you bickered with someone, and, and they pointed out to you some way that your love was just imperfect, how you were just less than what you should have been with what you said or what you did. Well, if it was an argument, um, I'm guessing what you didn't say was, you know what? You are so right. You know? Look at how I didn't measure up. If you could see my heart right now in this argument, you'd see I'm actually worse than what you're noticing. No one does that. We see the call to love. And we justify ourselves. We, we say that we're not as bad as others. We say that, that we're just doing part of what we should do. And we try to emphasize on the good we did do. We, we say that it, it wasn't our intent. As if God only cares about intentions and not also our actions. Or we do the type of justification that this man did. We try to limit the standard of what God expects. We try to limit it. And so God says, "Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a tall order." Well, how could that be achievable? And so he tries to limit it. He says, "Well well, who then, who, who is my neighbor?" I wonder, by the way, if there's any way in your life right now that you are trying to limit God's good commands. Are there any commands in his word your conscience knows you should be better following? And instead of just repenting and admitting your inability, you try to lower the standard of what God sets. But Jesus won't let this lawyer justify himself. So... Rather than here merely rebuking the man, now, Jesus tells him a story. Now, now certainly what he could have done was he could have just said to the man straight up, he could have said, well, your neighbor is anyone you meet. He could have, he could have said that. He could say, you are to love everyone as yourself. He could, he could just say, just don't set any limits on your love. Just the world. Anyone you meet, love like that. That's the law of God. But instead, Jesus does something more profound. He, he uses a story to, to make his point. And the story is well-known. It takes place on this road down to Jericho, which was actually a, a real road. It was a dangerous uh, journey that would be made, well-known for the caves along the way where, where robbers or thieves could hide and, and easily attack travelers who were by themselves. And the, the main character who's traveling on this road to Jericho is, is beaten, and he's robbed, and he's stripped, and he's left for dead on the side of the road. Now, just imagine if that was you. Part of this stretch of trying to get ourselves to love others as ourselves. What if that was you? What would you want in that moment? What would you, what would you hope for as you're sitting there in, in pain and, and all alone, hopeless, on the verge of death? What kind of care would you want others to offer to you? Verse 31 and 32 tells us how Jesus uh, speaks of first a priest coming by, and then a Levite coming down the same road. Both roles uh, in Israel not only led in worship of God, but also oversaw giving to the poor in Israel. Both saw the need of the man. Did you see that in the text? Both could have helped. But both distanced themselves to the other side of the road. Both of them avoided helping. They, they quite literally looked the other way so that they wouldn't be confronted with the, the suffering of the man. Now, we're not told how they justified themselves, whether they were busy, or they just didn't care, whether they didn't want to spend time and, and money on someone that they didn't know, whether they assumed that the man had made mistakes to get himself into that position. He shouldn't have been traveling alone. He should have been better prepared. He should have lived his life differently up until now, and he wouldn't be in that place. We're not told. We we're not told if maybe they were afraid for their own lives. After all, the fact that this man was not dead yet meant that the thieves might still be close by. I wonder, are there people in your life that you avoid? Are, are there people in this church that you back away from? Are, are there times that, that your conscience is pricked by a way that you could help someone near you, and yet you close your eyes? To avoid even seeing the need that God has put right in front of you. Uh, You know, elsewhere in in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches uh, about the final day, the day we just sung about. And he tells how when he returns, he's going to separate the the sheep from the goats. Uh, So the sheep, they, they belong with the Good Shepherd. The goats might look somewhat like the sheep, they're mixed in, they're among the same flock, but they don't belong to the Good Shepherd. Uh, They might be uh, Levites, even. They might even be goats that are priests, even. They might be members of First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach. They might be regular attenders that come every single week. But they're they're mixed in with the flock. They're not sheep. And in in Matthew 25, Jesus says, one of the ways that he'll be able to distinguish between those that look like sheep and those that are truly sheep, those who, whose lives have truly been changed by the gospel. They've really seen the gospel of grace. They get it. They get that nothing that they do before God earns their righteousness. It's all just given to them freely. It's all, all of grace. The ones that get that and the ones that miss it, well, one of the ways that Jesus is just going to be able to separate them right out Is how they respond to the least of these in our world. How we respond to the hungry and the thirsty, the poor, the sojourner, the the alien, the immigrant, the sick, the imprisoned. Uh, Jesus here is admitting that churches like ours can have mixed people together that aren't really Christians. And they might have heard the gospel, but they've never been changed by the gospel. Some people will virtue signal. They'll say all the right things. They'll post on their fe- Facebook. They'll, they'll claim the right doctrine. They'll know the right answers. And yet their lives will show that they never experienced God's grace for themselves. It's just the, the fruit of their lives, it's just obvious by the way they live. They pass others on the road that they could help, like this Levite and this priest. That's how we do respond to God's law. That's how you respond to God's law. That's how I respond. Well, how should we? How should we respond to God's perfectly good law? When God's word tells us to love him supremely and love our neighbors as ourselves, what should be our response? Look at verse 33 with me. We read there, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the traveler was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The lawyer wanted to put a limit on the law of God. You saw that, right? He wanted to put a limit on the law of God and and the love of neighbor. One author is helpful here, showing that Jesus is saying, don't wrongly limit the law of God. Don't limit the who, the when, or the, the how much of loving your neighbor as yourself. Think about the who of neighborly love. You see, this tw- the twist in this story is that for the hearers of Jesus' day, the, the, the hero of this story for that traveling man, the, the hero was a Samaritan. That The Samaritans that were despised by the Jews in that day They were not like the respected Levites or the respected priests. No, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They kept their distance. But this man crossed the chasm. This man didn't help the traveler based on his worthiness. He's a a worthy guy. He's like me. I'm going to help him out. No, he helped based on his compassion. Did you see that in the text? Compassion draws the heart of love to, to, to love someone you would otherwise despise. Oh, dear Christian, is this not what Jesus did for you in the gospel? What I mean for this is, is that what Jesus did is he came to us when we were despising him. For, for anyone here who's here today who isn't a follower of Jesus Christ, we believe gospel says that we have all wronged god we've we've just offended him we've lived our own ways before him we've we've made a mess of our lives and the gospel is that jesus came to us he sought us out he came to us and he lived a perfect life he died he he died he gave up everything and and suffered the wrath of god on our behalf and then he rose from the grave so that we could have new life in him anyone who who embraces this message by faith, anyone who looks to Christ in faith and repents from their sin will will receive the free gift of God, which is a relationship with him and eternal life. Christian, this compassion of Christ should give us a love like we see right here. When you see that the problems of poverty and, and of brokenness, is your first thought that person's unworthiness. Christ says, don't you dare, don't you dare draw a line of worthiness and unworthiness when looking at your hurting neighbor. Oh, dear dear Christian, what if Jesus did that for you? What if Jesus chose you based on your worthiness? Who would be here today following him? No, no. What if Jesus came and offered judgment for our unwise decisions that put us in our place of suffering? None of us, none of us would be saved. No, Jesus offers compassion. Don't wrongly limit the the when of neighborly love, not just the who. Verse 33 says that this man was on a journey and he stopped. He stopped and he likely put himself at risk. He, He wasn't helping the Samaritan wasn't helping because it was, it was convenient for him that day. Where the, the Levite and the priest, they, they literally passed by on the other side of the road. Did you notice the Samaritan went over to help? But don't also, also, don't limit the how much of loving your neighbor. Look at all that this man did. This man bound up the wounds of, of the hurting man. Likely, that the Samaritan would have had to tear his own garments for bandages in order to do this. He poured oil for soothing of the wounds, and he poured wine for cleaning out the wounds. He had both taken away from what he would have needed for the rest of his journey. He put the man on his own animal, meaning he presumably now walked. This was a sacrifice for him. His, his life was different. He, he, he's now walking because this man is on his animal. He took the man to an inn. He doesn't just leave him there. He clearly stays overnight until the next day. Then he pays two days' wages and promises to pay more and then come back. In fact, the text there, I will repay you in verse 35, it's emphatic. He's effectively saying, make sure I'm the one to pay, not the man. I will repay you, not him. And After all, the man was robbed. He didn't have money to pay. Do you see what's happening? The Samaritan here is sharing the cost of the robbery. He's splitting the cost with the man. I'll I'll pay half of what what just happened to you. I'll cover it. Don't wrongly limit the how much of neighboring love. Jesus drives the point home. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The answer is obvious. We all know. The lawyer knew, but he still couldn't even get out the word Samaritan out of his mouth. He can't admit that the enemy is the hero. So he said to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus commands what he put on display. He says, Jesus said to him, you then go and do likewise. That's the command. That's what you should do to obey the law of Christ. Let's apply this to our own lives just briefly here. I'll just, just throw out a series of questions, trying to stir the pot in your mind. Maybe just pick one of them, talk with a friend over lunch or a spouse later today. But let's start with your heart. Where in your heart do you need to grow in your compassion for others? Do you watch the news and look with judgment on those who are suffering? In violence or substance abuse or immigrants among us? Do you start with compassion? I mean, regardless of what policies we need to put into place and plans for response, does your heart first start with compassion? Or does it start with judgment? When you pass the homeless, are you moved to compassion? Are you moved to prayer? Perhaps even having food on hand, ready to give? Or do you pass those in need and despise them, looking down on them? What about your money? Do you give to help those who are hurting? Do you give to the benevolence fund here at our church? Which, by the way, for those who are in need, we have a benevolence fund at our church. And we love to use it to help those who are in difficult financial positions. Do do you give to those who are in need around you? Do you give to those who are in need spiritually? I mean, have you seriously considered giving to Joe and Janie Martinez? We've talked a lot about them this year. Do you know that Joe and Janie Martinez right now are still under-supported in their mission work? So they're right now living on not enough to live off of and planning for a retirement that they're not getting money for. Now this ought to be a tragedy among the church, that, that they're in a place of urgent spiritual need, not having enough. Do you look for ways to informally help those in our church, Uh, even financially, with informal gifts, or uh, with those who need your time? Who around you can you love with all the energy, force, with all the zeal, with all the creativity that you love yourself? This is what we should do. But who among us can do this? Oh, church, we need the power of someone who has done this already, who gives us an alien ability, an outside ability, an ability that doesn't come from our mere willpower to do this. We need something beyond ourselves if we are to obey the good law of God. I think that's part of why Jesus here chose to not just answer this man with the answer to, To clarify the law. I think this is part of the reason why Jesus chose. To give his answer in a story. To give us the story of the Good Samaritan. Why? What am I talking about here? Because even this story. Helps us answer the question we need. Number four. How does Christ respond? You see a command will never be enough. To help us obey. But the one who has gone before us has not only set us an example but he has given us his power that will lead us to obedience uh, now this passage just admittedly is just notoriously misapplied as allegory i mean throughout church history you can go back even to the early centuries of the church people were reading this passage and saying that different details stood for different allegorical symbolisms And I think it's been kind of cut up really tragically. The the primary point of this passage is how you should live as a neighbor. It's what it looks like. It's a call to be a Good Samaritan. And yet, on this side of the cross, for us who have seen the example of Jesus Christ, we can see how Jesus perfectly followed what he commanded. Jesus did this. He did it perfectly. And then he offers himself to us to give us his power to do the same. Listen to D.A. Carson. He writes this. The only ultimate good Samaritan is Jesus himself. Because he comes to us stripped down as we are stripped down, beaten up, broken, needy, and he pays our price. He bears us to a place of safety such that we don't have to bear anything at all. And he gives us life. Friends, do you want to love God with all of your being? Do you want to love your neighbor as yourself? You must first see Christ. You must see him as having come to us when we are ravaged and beaten down, when we are stripped, when we are incapable of, on the side of the road in our own power to move ourselves. We have no ability on our own. We are like that man on that side of the road. And the great Samaritan, Jesus Christ, comes and he pays the price our sin deserves. He brings us to safety. He has compassion on us. He crosses the road to come to us. Your hope for obeying the law of God today comes from being transformed as you see that in Christ. As you see what Christ already did to obey the law and how he then sacrificed and gave himself for you. When you're gripped by that type of love, when, when that type of love changes you from the inside out, you'll be made new. You'll you'll see with new eyes that see the work of our Savior. And you'll find that in him are all the resources you need today to obey. You'll find that you can start to love God. To really love God. You'll find that you can start to love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe not perfectly, but moving in the direction of our eternity and future our future home. You'll find that you can love him because as scripture says, we love him because he first loved us. He is what we need. Let's go and discover what this means today. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our great Samaritan. We thank you that when we were helpless on the side of the road, that Christ came for us. We thank you that he comes to us with compassion. Not the type of cheap compassion that we so easily fall into for our neighbors, but a free An embarrassing level of compassion for us. Oh God, we pray that you would shape us by the gospel. We pray that seeing Christ, we might be transformed into his image. We pray that you would give us the strength that we need to follow his commands today. And we pray this in the name of Christ.